0: It's an honor to be here with you to speak on Holy Mary, Mother of God. And what I'd like for us to do at the beginning is just to think about the relevance of this. So in terms of Holy Mary, Mother of God, uh, there's, a, uh, there's confusion, there's anger, there's ignorance, uh, there's interest, there's fascination, there's wonder. Okay, There are all sorts of reactions when you say Mary is the Mother of God. Okay? Think about it. You know, what's your reaction? What are the reactions of your friends and your family members, of of those around you? You know, so to be able to think about this, and what I would like for us to do is is to enter more deeply into this mystery. Okay? So we're going to do this in different ways. I'd like for us uh, to think about how uh, uh, that uh, what, when we call Mary Mother of God, we continue an ancient tradition, uh, something that's actually defining uh, the Christian faith. Okay, so sometimes we'll use the Greek term Theotokos. Okay, Theotokos is a, a fancy Greek word that just simply means bearer of God, bearer of God. Sometimes uh, uh, it's translated as Mother of God, and that's just fine. Okay, so in terms of bearer of God, literally, but mother of God, okay? Uh, or uh, in terms of just thinking about how when we say this, we actually say something quite simple. Who was born from the Virgin Mary? God, okay? Now, why can we say this? Jesus Christ is God. Saint Thomas the Apostle, when he experiences the risen Lord, he cries out, "My Lord and my God!" Right? and that Jesus is one, the one Lord Jesus Christ, okay? He is uh, uh, with a human nature besides that divine nature that he's had from all eternity, but mothers give birth to persons, okay so uh, you know my mom Loretta Hofer, uh, uh, you know, gave birth uh, to 10 persons, okay? You know, I've never heard uh, her say, I gave birth to 10 human natures. <laughs> okay? Right, I've, I've just never heard that from my mom. Okay? But, you know, but she gave birth to me. Right? In the case of Jesus, uh, he is the eternal son of God who became flesh in her womb. Okay? So actually, the, uh, the affirmation of Holy Mary as Mother of God, as the Theotokos, is an affirmation of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every time we affirm that Mary is Mother of God, it's actually referring us to the one whom she bore, to Jesus Christ. He's God. So that there's a unity there, and there's a certain Christian logic, a Christian logic. Jesus Christ is our Lord and God. Mary is his mother. Mary is the mother of God. Now, in terms of, we can study this in various ways. What I'd like for us to do uh, is actually to go back and to, to think about how the Bible is to be read. Okay, so I read a little snippet from the Bible, from Luke chapter 1. I'd like for us to think about what is Luke the Evangelist doing in communicating the scene, okay? And, and then to, to enter the mystery through this approach, because there are people who, who wonder, you know, is this really biblical? Uh, you know, where they'll say, this isn't, this isn't biblical. Well, let's just go back, Luke chapter 1. How does St. Luke begin his gospel after the introductory verses? Where is the scene? Okay, so in terms of just thinking about Luke and that scene, uh, so Luke chapter 1, uh, he has his prologue, and then beginning with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Once, when he was serving as priest and his divisions turned before God, according to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. It's the temple. Luke, the evangelist, begins his narration of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ with the temple. as very important, okay? Now, we know that the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 AD, all right? um, But the temple, okay, you, know, you think, what? The temple is commanded by God uh, to be constructed with great detail because this would be the dwelling place of the Lord, Okay? This, was, this is where people would come, come up to Jerusalem to do worship. And that, uh, that within the temple, you had the Holy of Holies. Um, and that the Holy of Holies, that sanctuary, had the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So in terms of, of the commandments and the, the realization that we are bonded to God by this covenant covenant. Okay, that, that in the holy of holies, that God's presence is made known precisely in terms of being in covenant with his people. All right? The temple. Okay, uh, and then, you, and then and to think about how uh, there are different practices of, of the holy people of God concerning the temple and how precious and holy the different things of the temple were. You know, even like the things of the furniture, uh, you know, the, the various sacred vessels. Everything that had that proximity to worship was considered special, sacred. Okay? And then for us to think about how um, things could be profaned too. Okay? So in terms of especially the enemies uh, coming to take out the things of the temple. All right? but, but you just think, oh, okay, there's this kind of majesty, wonder about the temple of the Lord. Well, Luke before he gets to uh, describing the Annunciation gives a, a, the Annunciation to Zechariah in the temple in terms of his 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 special priestly role there in terms of the sanctuary to enter the sanctuary of the Lord okay so so that the angel uh, Gabriel then gives him a message concerning uh, concerning the birth of John okay John the Baptist and how uh, how this is, this, is, this is an answer uh, to prayer. Okay, but Zechariah doesn't believe. He doesn't believe, and so he's struck dumb. Now, you'd go from there to what we heard in terms of the Virgin Mary. And then you find, oh, the different elements of the temple now are seen in Mary's own life. Her own body. In terms of the overshadowing. The whole power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And in terms of, uh, of who she is. So as mother of God, she then becomes a new temple of the Lord. Right now. Uh, so if you go to the dedicate, Solomon's dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. He says... Is God indeed to dwell on earth? If the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built? Okay, so God. You know, the heavens, the highest of heavens cannot contain God. And yet God wants to be known there in the temple. In Mary, God, okay, the heavens can't contain God. God comes to dwell within her. Okay? So then to be able to see how early Christians made this uh, reciprocity between the language of the temple and the language of Mary. Okay? Now, a great biblical scholar by the name of Gary Anderson, uh, who taught me at the University of Notre Dame, has a beautiful book called Christian Doctrine and the Old Testament. Christian Doctrine in the Old Testament, Theology and the Service of Biblical Exegesis. And I have on your handout a couple quotations from him, and I'd like for you to hear something about, uh, about how to read the Bible, first of all, okay? So uh, sometimes, people, uh, um, sometimes people don't know how rich uh, university biblical exegesis can be, okay? So uh, Gary Anderson, uh, I think, uh, gives wonderful insights here. He writes, The development of the temple metaphor in relation to the Incarnation sheds considerable light on how the early church conceived the relationship between the two Testaments. The relationship between the two is not simply predictive, but figural. What I mean by this is that the Old Testament is more than a simple set of prophecies about the coming Messiah it also provides the Christian reader with a set of theological premises that retain their per se voice even after the advent of Israel's Messiah. Indeed, we could state the matter more strongly. Certain theological subjects raised in the New Testament necessitate a return to the Old Testament in order for their contents to be understood. Consequently, we can say that the Old Testament does more than simply articulate the New, rather it fills in areas that the New merely gestures toward. Okay, so this is where in terms of a Christian reading of our Bible, the two Testaments, that the Old Testament isn't simply, it does give prophecies in terms of things of prediction, but it also um, can be read figurally in light of the New Testament, and that the details of the Old Testament can help us think about the realities uh, that are revealed in the New Testament. And so what Professor Anderson does here is to look at this connection between temple and Mary as mother of God. Okay? You know, holy Mary, mother of God. Holy temple, the dwelling place of the Lord. Right? And then just in terms of, you know, because sometimes people may think, well, you know, this is, this is only a Catholic approach. It's not simply a Catholic approach to the Bible. I give you one witness of a Protestant uh, scholar, Hans Bursma. He has a beautiful book called "Scripture as Real Presence: Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church." Okay, so uh, so that, uh, that various biblical scholars can see how by reading the Bible we can have a sacramental or figural reading to um, to give us um, to unite us to early Christians who read in these fashions. Okay? And then to be able to see how our faith can be enriched by the wholeness of the Bible, the wholeness of the Bible. All right, so now in terms of just thinking about the connections of the temple uh, and, uh, and the New Testament mystery, well, uh, if you go to John chapter 2, uh, Jesus uses the image to, uh, to describe his own body. So in terms of John chapter 2, remember then the cleansing of the temple? uh, uh, His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show for us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So one way of using the temple imagery is to talk about Jesus's Body, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. It's, it's his resurrection. Or you could also take it in terms of his body, which is the church. And Saint Paul says this in terms of First Corinthians chapter three. So 1 Corinthians chapter three, uh, and if you go there, uh, there with um, verse sixteen. So three sixteen. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that? Well, how much more is this true of one member of the church, Mary, okay, in terms of that divine indwelling in her? So uh, Gary Anderson says, she would be identified in the iconographic tradition as the container of the uncontainable, an unmistakable allusion to the God of Israel whose being cannot be contained even in the highest of the heavens. Okay, so 1 Kings 8, 27. Yehud, nevertheless, deigned to dwell in Jerusalem, proved a fitting dwelling wherein the creator of the universe could find habitation. Okay, so uh, Gary Anderson then goes back, especially to St. Leo the Great. So in terms of the fathers of the church, to be able to show the connection of Mary uh, as uh, being depicted in temple imagery as mother of God. And then Anderson continues, Mary does not become God, of course, but she does house God in the most intimate way imaginable. The extrinsic manner of relating God to temple is put to good use. Mary both receives the divine son and gives birth to him. God both enters and exits her womb. But according to the logic of the incarnation, this moment is transformational. Her body remains holy forever thereafter because it has housed the Holy One of Israel. And as the temple could be revered and praised on its own terms without any worry of committing some form of idolatrous apostasy, so Mary could be revered and adored, not as a goddess, but as the one who housed God. If one could turn to the temple and say, how lovely is thy dwelling place, and attend to its every architectural detail, why would one not do the same with the theotokos? Okay? How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts. That's what has been prayed in the Psalms for thousands of years. When Christians pray this, we can think about this on all sorts of levels, and one level is Mary. She is the all-lovely one. In her, there is neither spot nor wrinkle. Okay, So everything is beautiful within her soul. And then to think about how in terms of the temple, because when you go back to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, that, uh, that you see in terms of not only the divine dwelling, but the divine exit. Okay? So that the, that the Lord actually comes and goes in terms of the temple. Well, with Mary then, uh, you can see how he came okay, by the power of the Holy Spirit was overshadowing her. He came, took flesh from her, and was born from her. They are okay. So, in terms of that, she bore the Savior. Um, so that, that there's a, there's an incarnational reality. You know, for nine months, she held our Lord within her womb, okay, and then she miraculously gave birth to him, and that uh, and that she always held him in her soul, though, okay. So, in terms of the bodily reality and the reality of the soul. And so her title, Theotokos, or Mother of God, uh, is the most exalted of all the titles uh, because in the order of grace, it is so wonderful. You know, in terms of, you know, to think about how this eternal Son of God took our flesh, our weak human nature, in her womb. Right now, let's look at the details of Luke's portrayal in this first chapter, okay? So, in terms of being attentive to the figural reading of the Old Testament. Luke specifies that Mary is a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Okay, so in terms of David, Solomon is David's son who built the temple. Okay, Uh, and so in terms of this lineage uh, uh, you think about who David is and how he has a son and that son Solomon uh, in terms of his name being peace that he, that he constructed this, this temple. And the angel pays reverence to her as especially chosen and favored. Okay? So in terms of a heavenly message and then that, the, uh, you, that, that you know, who's paying honor to whom here? Okay? It's an angel Paying honor to a human being. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Okay, so she who was uh, without sin, was full of grace from her first moment of conception, uh, is, uh, is radiant in spiritual beauty, and the angel Gabriel knows that. And so uh, he is in awe of her. Uh, and then she, uh, of course, is frightened uh, in terms of uh, her humility. What's going on here? Uh, and, and so the angel Gabriel needs to reassure her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That the one who will be within her is precisely the Son of the Most High, the Lord. Okay? And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, um, now, then to think about how uh, early Christians had the sense of holiness as related to the temple. In the second century, there's a writing called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Okay, the Proto-Evangelium of James. And this is where, uh, in terms of our liturgical calendar, we have this feast called the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, so in November we have this feast day. Well, um, it's it, you have this presentation recorded in the second century document. It has very striking details. One thing that's very clear is that the early Christians thought that Mary belonged in the Holy of Holies. Okay, so she's actually, in terms of the presentation of the temple. She, uh, she's this little girl who uh, dances up the steps, okay? So she has a little dance uh, when she's placed up on the steps. Uh, and, then, and then she goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, because that's who she is. That God is preparing her to be the new sanctuary, okay? And then, you know, as it said, you know, if you think the land is holy because it's chosen by God and then because of the incarnation, how much more the woman how much more the woman from whom God took his flesh? Yeah. So, so, uh, so to be able to, uh, to appreciate that. Now, in terms of going back to Luke chapter 1, one thing I love to do is to compare 2 Samuel chapter 6, so particularly verses 1 through 11, with Luke 1, 39 to 45, and then 56. Okay, so, that's, uh, so this is the visitation. But go back and hear from Second Samuel chapter 6. The ark is brought to Jerusalem. Okay, beginning with verse 1. Listen. David again assembled all the picked men of Israel, 30,000 in number. Then David and all the people who were with him set out for Baal of Judah to bring out from there the ark of God, which bears the name the Lord of hosts, enthroned upon the cherubim. They transported the ark of God on a new cart and took it away from the house of Abinadab on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart, and Ohio walking before it, while David and all the house of Israel danced before the Lord with all their might, with singing, with lyres, harps, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. As they reached the threshing floor of Nodon, Uzzah stretched out his hand to the ark of God and steadied it, for the oxen were tipping it. Then the Lord became angry with Uzzah. God struck him on that spot, and he died there in God's presence. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. Therefore, that place has been called Peraz-Uzzah even to this day. David became frightened of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. David deposited it instead at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. All right. So think about those details and listen again to the visitation. Okay. So going back to Luke chapter one. During those days, Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in a haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Most blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled." Okay, and then Mary then gives her Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And after she proclaims, she sings her song of the Magnificat, which the church sings every evening at Vespers. Then we read from Luke Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Okay, so David says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth says, how does this happen that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. Okay. So um, it does seem that Luke, especially when you read this in the Greek and go back to the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Luke has in mind this very scene in terms of narrating the visitation. Okay, Why? Because Mary is the new Ark of the Lord, she has within her God's own presence. And then, in terms of just going to Revelation, so uh, Revelation chapter eleven nineteen to verse to chapter twelve verse one. Okay, so uh, you know uh, these chapters were placed in the Bible. I think in the twelfth century, so you don't you don't really uh, have everything all. Uh, all divided. It's just a continuous, continuous words. So listen to this all together. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. A great sign appeared in the sky a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. It's all together. Okay? So. Uh, now, people can say, "Oh, well, you know, in the Book of Revelation, that woman is more depicting in terms of the people, the, the people, the church." Um, it's a great principle that what you say of of the church, you can say of Mary, and what you say of Mary, you can say of the church. Okay, with just with just little change. And evidence for this is from Isaac of Stella, so this great 12th century uh, spiritual writer. His sermon 51. I have this here. Mary and the church are one mother, yet more than one mother, one virgin, yet more than one virgin. Both are mothers, both are virgins. Each conceives of the same spirit without concupiscence. Each gives birth to a child of God the Father without sin. Without any sin, Mary gave birth to Christ, the head, for the sake of his body. But by the forgiveness of every sin, the church gave birth to the body for the sake of its head. Each is Christ's mother, but neither gives birth to the whole Christ without the cooperation of the other. In the inspired scriptures, what is said in a universal sense of the Virgin Mother the Church is understood in an individual sense of the Virgin Mary. And what is said in a particular sense of the Virgin Mother Mary is rightly understood in a general sense of the Virgin Mother of the Church. When either is spoken of, the meaning can be understood of both, almost without qualification. Okay? So, because, uh, because the Church uh, is meant to be Mother of Christ, okay? So... Uh, whoever, does my, whoever does the will of my Heavenly Father is brother and sister and mother to me. Mary did the will of the Heavenly Father. She said yes. Okay? She gave her fiat. Let it be done to me according to your word. And so uh, we then can, uh, can see her uniqueness. She has a singular privilege. And then something about her singular privilege is shared in a mysterious sense in terms of of the maternity of the church, right? And it all goes back to who Jesus is. Jesus is God, the eternal Son of God who uh, generated from the Father, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit is one God forever and ever. That one for us and for our salvation took our flesh, took our flesh from the Virgin Mary to be with us. Right now, so in terms of this language of Mother of God, the first in the Bible you have things about uh, Mary being the mother of Jesus, and that Jesus Christ is again my Lord and my God. All right? the term Theotokos seems to appear first in the middle of the third century. Okay, we have a, a Greek papyrus fragment, and it's actually the oldest recorded prayer to Our Lady, the Subtuum. Okay, so the Subtuum Presidium in Latin, uh, that's how uh, sometimes it's known. Or in the English at the beginning, we fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. Okay, so in the middle of the third century, St. Athanasius, who dies in 373, uh, is adamant that we should call Mary Mother of God. And then St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who dies around 390, he even says, Whoever does not accept Holy Mary as mother of God has no relation with the Godhead. Okay? So St. Greg of Nazianzus is a rhetor, and orator, and he loves to uh, play uh, with his Greek language. And, uh, and so what I think he's doing there is because mother of God is precisely a relation, okay, mother of God, right? So if you don't acclaim her as mother of God, you have no relation to God. Okay? That's his point. Okay, he, he has these ten anathemas, okay, and uh, he, will, he will play around to show in terms of the punishment fitting the crime. Okay, if you don't do that, you're, you have no relation with God. All right, and then the most famous father of the church for the Theotokos is St. Cyril of Alexandria. And uh, he's responding to a bishop by the name of Nestorius, who's bishop of Constantinople, and, uh, and so I give you a quotation here from uh, Nestorius' second letter to St. Cyril. The letter was condemned at uh, the Third Ecumenical Council, which was Ephesus in the year 431. But this is what Nestorius says about how he reads the Bible. Holy Scripture, wherever it recalls the Lord's economy, so especially the this is a word, technical Greek word meaning ekonomia, meaning incarnation, speaks of the birth and suffering, not of the Godhead, but of the humanity of Christ, so that the Holy Virgin is more accurately termed mother of Christ than mother of God. Okay, or Christotokos, not Theotokos. Okay, now you might say, okay, uh, that she, she's mother of Christ. Yes, she is mother of Christ. But Nestorius did not want anybody to say that she was mother of God. Okay, it's just, it sounds pagan. It's too, you know, um, you know well, then it sounds like that God is the subject Okay. For Nestorius, there seems to be two subjects. Anything that Jesus does, well, you have to pay attention. Is he doing it uh, in terms of God as subject of it, or is he doing it in terms of the humanity, the human uh, as a subject of it? Right? The thing about it is that Jesus does have both a human and divine nature, but he's only one person. He's the eternal Son of God. That's his person, and he takes upon himself our human nature. So, St. Cyril of Alexandria responds, okay, so in terms of his own anathema, if anyone does not confess the Emmanuel to be truly God and hence the Holy Virgin to be Mother of God, for she gave birth in the flesh to the Word of God made flesh, let him be anathema. Okay? <clears throat> so you see how there's a qualification that... Uh, that Cyril um, is saying that this is according to the flesh or in the flesh. Okay, the, uh, God is beyond all space and time, but God chose to act uh, at a certain point in a certain person, the Virgin Mary of Nazareth. Right. So this is what has happened. And so this language um, to say mother of God is something that is... Uh, that is so beautiful to be able to affirm that God didn't just send a prophet, you know, or that, uh, that the one uh, born of, of Mary isn't just simply a man. The one who died for our salvation isn't just a mere man. God, God in the flesh, God in our humanity, suffered and died for us. That's the great mystery of our faith. And so, uh, so then to be able to see, okay, that's what's at stake. Yes, it can be confusing. Yes, people can get angry. Yes, it's hard to understand. Yes, yes, yes. But it's worth the effort to think about it, to pray about it, because it's been revealed. And uh, it's a dogma of the Catholic Church. It's... It's of that level of importance. St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa says, we must say that the Blessed Virgin is called the Mother of God, not as though she were the Mother of the Godhead, okay? So in terms of Mary didn't, you know, like before eternity, give birth to the eternal Godhead. Okay, that makes no sense, right? No, no sense. Okay, we must say that the Blessed Virgin is called the Mother of God, not as though she were the Mother of the Godhead, but because she is the mother according to his human nature of the person who has both the divine and the human nature. Okay, again, the one who gives birth gives birth to a person. Okay? Okay, did Jesus pre-exist to Mary? Yes. Okay, he is the eternal son of God. But she still, she gave birth to the son of God, the Holy One of God. All right? So, Uh, And and just in terms of this language, uh, sometimes people will say, okay, well, we should say just bearer of God because mother of God is too much. And, you know, the Greeks, if you want to be more Eastern, you know, you say bearer of God. Well, if you ever look at a Greek icon of the mother of God, almost always you will see in abbreviation uh, in our Roman alphabet, we could say M and R because it's mater. Okay, that's on this side. Uh, so on uh, Our Lady's right, okay, what we looked at, the, so mater, and then on the other side, there's an abbreviation for Theou, Mother of God, okay? So they actually don't have Theotokos. They have Mater Theou, Mother of God. So God, so it's traditional um, uh, to say not only bearer of God, but Mother of God. God was born in the flesh of the Virgin Mary to suffer and die in the flesh so that we might rise to new life with him.